1: Hello and welcome to the Voice of Reason Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guests are two very special guests. One is Deborah So, who is a columnist, a journalist, and a sex researcher. She previously was a sex researcher before she jettisoned the Academy and went into writing and Her book is "The End of Gender, and it goes through point by point and discusses different myths about sex. And gender and the related constructs around relationships and identity and uh, the political correctness culture that is suppressing the free flow of truth through our conversations on this matter. The other guest is Abigail Schreier, and her book is Irreversible Damage, which takes a very close look at the ways in which young women are being affected by transgender or gender ideology. In this conversation, we talk about their research and their writing and their experience exploring these ideas and we get into the nitty-gritty of what we can be doing as individuals to call out bad ideas when we come across them. So without further ado, here is Abigail Schreier and Dr. Debra So. Dr. So, where's Hi, your uh, pop filter?
2: I took it off because people are so angry and saying like, you don't need a pop filter with that microphone, it has a built-in pop filter. And I'm like, yeah, well, I still, I still pop my peas." But uh, I took it off just for, you know, when there's a visual.
1: So here we are. Have you two spoken uh, before? No. I actually don't think we have.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So how many uh, interviews have you guys done just this summer on your books, like these remote things? A lot. (laughs) Yeah. A lot. Like twice a week or so or more?
2: probably in the beginning it's more i'm I've, I've spaced them out a bit more just cuz i don't want people to get sick of seeing me
0: hmm. yeah it was, it was it was certainly very intense for a while um um yeah it was i think you know i had there was one day i had seven interviews um wow. so yeah I, I definitely was doing a lot of them <laughs>
1: and abigail your book was released on june 30th if i recall correctly right I don't know why I know that date, but June 30th and Deborah, yours was a little later in, in August,
2: August 4th. Yeah. It came out. Yeah.
1: And how's the reception been?
2: It's been really, it's been really positive. Um, among people who've actually read the book, I can usually tell based on the criticism whether someone's actually read it or not. Um, but I'm always open to feedback. I love hearing what people think about it. And um, yeah, it was, it was a relief just to know that it did resonate with, with my readers and that people appreciate the information and that they felt that the science was written in a way that they could also understand it and make use of it in their day-to-day life.
1: Yeah, it's very, very accessible. What do you think is the idea that people are converging on or what they're most um, uh, seeing from, from the work, The End of Gender?
2: Probably that a lot of the things that they know to be true are still true and that those things that they thought they had to relearn or think differently about it's actually very much ideologically based and that it's actually okay to say what you really think because it is the truth. I mean, even if you have an idea that goes against particular narratives, I think people should be able to talk about it and not have to worry about what the repercussions are going to be to the way people think of them or if people are going to think they're hateful or whatever. But I think my sense is, yeah, it's just this collective sigh that people are realizing a lot of the information that they're being told more recently is not actually factually true. And so they they don't feel, I guess, as alienated or as crazy.
1: Mm-hmm. Have you seen anything like this, uh, this ideological or this suppressive of uh, facts and truth?
2: In academia, definitely. Like I would say in the years when I was doing my PhD, when I finished, and it's gotten so much worse now. Um, But we saw this coming for a while. I just didn't think it would ever reach this level in terms of how mainstream it is. And also the fact that now these ideas are becoming really accepted in our culture, and they're not, to question them is considered, again, bigoted, which I didn't think it was ever going to take that level of... um, meaning i guess or that that would it would be so taboo to talk about basic facts especially biology i don't think biology would ever become something that's considered this contentious um, and i think a lot of that is stemming from people who either don't fully understand it they don't understand the scientific method and that's why they find it threatening i do think some people are operating from a position of trying to help certain communities but this is definitely not the way you go about doing it <laughs>
1: And Abigail, you've been studying, in your book you look into specifically about how transgender uh, ideology is affecting young women, but you did a lot of interviews with a lot of different facets, on the education front, on the therapy front, and then you get get into uh, how it's affecting young people. What's your thought of this as a, a new phenomenon, that this is something that you need to agree with, or how ideologically loaded it is?
0: It's shockingly loaded. I mean, you know, I'm very grateful that the reception of my book was really good on the, you know, sort of individual normal people level. So people reading it, like the book, you know, found, you know, agreed with it, whatnot. But, you know, I get a lot of, you know, messages in my DMS about, you know, I agree with your book, I did not find a prejudice, you know, transgender adults reached out, all kinds of people. But but I can't say so because I work for a company that where I could be fired, a very woke company. Or um, you know, I'm I'm, you know, the, the number or, you know, my daughter's school, you know, if they found out what whatnot, the, the number of people in America today who feel that they can't say basic truths, right? is is shocking um they can't say you know a biological man is not a woman i mean that's that's what that's hate speech or something um so we really have ended up in this very strange place i know i said america and obviously deborah's in canada sorry i you know i think this applies to much of the west i'm sure i you know i don't it definitely does you know yeah i mean i it's it's really really stunning i mean these are Private people who work in, in a say a company and literally are you know please never use my name um, you know because my my company will fire me for saying you know for saying that I like your book or you know anything like it it's it's so ridiculous but but if you look at you know reviews if you look at you know response to the Joe Rogan show it's overwhelmingly positive and and my DMs are full of even positive comments from transgender adults who are very lovely people and very sober. And they think what's going on with this sudden rush to transition teenage girls is is a little insane because, let's be honest, it is. I mean, when you see a sudden spike like this, you have to ask what's going on. And that's all I sought to do. Mm
1: -hmm. Just last week, I believe, Mermaids, which is a uh, very active, rather powerful advocacy group based in the U.K., Promoting LGBT issues, but it seems like they've been pretty heavy in the T part of their advocacy. It seems like they reversed their position on just on the statement that somebody is born in the wrong body. Did you guys see that? And what is your reaction to that? Is that like a sea change or do you think it's a power play?
2: I've noticed that the people who are really excited about them seem to quiet it down quite a bit. I think they're they're sensing what's coming and they don't want to be now, quote unquote, on the wrong side of history, even though those of us who are right have been called on the wrong side of history. So I think there's going to be more of that. Like I, My sense is with the trend in terms of when the truth does start to come out more and there are more detransitioners because we do see this happening in the UK. It's happening over there first. It hasn't quite hit us over here in North America yet to the same extent. And I think when it does people are just going to flip sides like that and pretend like oh well we had no idea this was going to happen and how could we have predicted this and this is so terrible and whereas you know those of us who are shouting about this and trying to bring attention to it we're going to be saying oh we've been we've been calling this out for a long time and you guys called us transphobic for doing so so yeah I, i think yeah it's the start of it's the start of what's coming i think
0: yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I, you know, I just read today, you know, they, they're, they're trying to, you know, the, the woke employees of Spotify are trying to get my episode stripped off Joe Rogan. And even though outlets that report on this say controversial writer, Abigail Schreier, well, I've never been a controversial writer before. I'm not a provocateur. I'm not someone who's out there. I mean, truly, you know, the, the things that I, I say in my book, I think will will come to seem very humdrum. Um, you know, in say ten years, of of course, this was clearly you know a a a fad. Um, these numbers didn't make any sense, and it was worth exploring. But today, whenever they say my name, they now have to say controversial writer because because anybody you know, everybody, even that that's even what the nice outlets say about me. The others, you know, obviously just call me a transphobe. But you know, it's like they have to brand you today because. They're they're still so afraid, um, you know. Mm. I I do I agree with that. I think it's going to change.
1: It, however, it what your book goes into, uh, and you touch on this, uh, Doctor So, but you devote an entire chapter to what's going on in schools, Abigail. And I just my school, my local school, pushed out a transgender training, which is based on this idea that sex is assigned, but. Your gender is authentic and true. Your gender is uh, some sort of plat- platonic form, but basically, what I'm trying to say is that it, it's really deeply embedded in our institutions of education, from you know primary school all the way up to college. So the the way that it's going to change, I, I don't see it's going to change overnight. If the these advocacy groups change course it's still already implemented how long is that going yeah, be, be, to play out
0: it's going to have a profound effect on these children for a very long time there's a lot of gender confusion they are being pushed to consider that, that at, at very young ages 5 years old that they're pro- that maybe a girl in a boy's body or a boy in a girl's body and all this nonsense and and it's not going to stop in the schools because the schools really do lag behind everything else it's like my school I, <laughs> my kid's school implemented common core after i think it was like you know, five or eight years after every other school had hated it, you know, and and it was becoming discredited as a, you know, as a good, um, you know, curriculum. I mean, the, the schools will lag behind. And unfortunately, they will continue to push this stuff for a very, I think, for a very long time. I mean, a lot of schools are just getting going. Um, and, and we're seeing it, it's it's funny, parents are awakening to this because they're finding out that their kids um, are being taught, you know, that America was founded in 1619 in order to promote slavery and racism. And um, so, so parents are waking up to the fact that there's been a real woke takeover of even our school systems, um, not only our universities. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and I would say the same thing in Canada, like where I'm based in Toronto in in the province of Ontario. They're very sneaky about it because even though the official curriculum doesn't say these particular things that are being taught i mean the teachers have some leeway in terms of what they choose to teach the kids in school so even if all of this stuff ends up being discredited finally in a few years they're still free they have that that um room in terms of what they choose to teach the kids and i don't think it's an ideology that they're going to give up on because they recognize the power in getting children indoctrinated and thinking this way
1: why what's so powerful about that why would somebody be interested in doing that?
2: Because I think if you can mold the way children view and you mold it in a way that's not based in anything real, you can control them. and You can control basically how they go forward in life and the way they think. I mean, I don't think it's just it's about gender, only gender, right? It's about also this larger anti-scientific theme that feeling is more important than reality or objective truth, that there maybe is no such thing as objective truth, And so once you teach children these things, they really are dependent on you, I think. You're not giving them the tools to think. They're dependent on you to tell them how to think or what to think.
1: And what's the outcome for this? Uh, Specifically in the gender and sexuality, what have you both seen? uh, How does this affect young people and their development?
2: Well, they're totally lost, I would say. I mean, we even have comprehensive sex ed here. I, I am in favor of comprehensive sex ed. I do think it's important for children to learn about healthy human sexuality obviously not to to learn about having sex necessarily it has to be age appropriate but i do think that's helpful because children who do receive comprehensive sex ed make better decisions about their sexual health they do tend to delay when they begin having sex they're more likely to use protection things like that but my issue is when it is it has these ideas that are not scientific so when you're teaching this to children i mean i have a chapter in the book about sex and dating there's even young adults are completely clueless when it comes to how to relate to the opposite sex if they're straight because they're being told basically men and women are the same so i I think this is really harmful especially for young women because they're going into these situations without a clear uh, expectation of what men are actually like when it comes to sex they're not going to be the same as us
0: you know, it's funny, you know, I, you know, in general, I, I, you know, I tend, I agree with Deverso so that, that, you know, that, that, um, you know, that sex ed, comprehensive sex ed is a good thing for kids. It's just that schools have done such a horrifically bad job of it that in recent years, you know, I, I tend to, you know, really respect empirical, you know, sort of facts on the ground. And, and it definitely doesn't seem to be doing, they don't seem to be doing a good job of it. And, and I, I think you probably agree with that. Um, you know, in in the Cal, you mentioned how um, you know they deceive parents in California. It's been shocking. I mean, when I went in and found, you know, I talk about in the book what, what the ways they were deceiving parents in t- 2019. The parents found out that there would be a new curriculum involving all kinds of sexual things, um, from blood play. They would be taught about blood play, all kinds of you know, anal sex, mass. They would be taught masturbation. I mean, things that just really went beyond what you thought. Kids need to hear from their seventh grade teacher, and um, and and they had a protest. There was a major protest in Sacramento, and some of the wor- you know most explicit books and and really odd books were taken off the curriculum. And so, um, you know, I didn't I was able to talk to various teachers, sort of undercover, whatever. You know, they they you know I, some of them didn't you know I didn't use names and whatnot, and they they showed me that that these books had then been supplied to the teachers after they officially removed them uh, through the virtual curricula that they supply teachers. So the mm-hmm. teachers, what what was going on in the classroom was very different from what the parents were seeing. And you see this all over. I mean, I, I don't know, you know, why would you want to, I mean, these, these teachers seem to have a savior complex, many of them, in which they think they are, you know, teaching kids is boring, but saving lives through this, you know, emancipation from—I from, don't know—binary, you know, um, you know, biology is is somehow more valorous.
1: Did uh, Deborah? So your book is called *The End of Gender*. What happens when we end gender? Do we fall or do we fly? Are we free? What happens?
2: <laughs> well. When I refer to the end of gender, it's probably not in the way that most people interpret the title to be. I'm referring to the end of our understanding of any sort of real, accurate um, understanding of gender, as opposed to the end of, say, gender norms. I think it's important for people to be able to do uh, pursue whatever they want in life and... Whether that's gender typical or atypical, whether you're gender conforming or otherwise. Um, but the title refers more so to this idea that science and now really has become such a problem that we cannot we do not have an accurate understanding of it, especially not in the mainstream. And I only see that problem getting worse as you know, I talk about how activism is infecting academia, it's affecting the kind of studies that are being produced, so that yeah, that's only going to make things much, much worse going forward.
1: How do you see, um, I was just contacted a couple days ago by a parent at a school close to me, and she's a part of a sex-based rights, she, she called it sex-based rights uh, advocacy group, and they were wondering how to find this stuff in the education system. How do you notice what it is? What are the key uh, you know, qualities of this teaching uh, that you can notice that this is something that's not based on reality or it's based on these other sets of ideas?
2: I would say the biggest thing, well, the book, my book, I lay it out in terms of nine different myths. And I talk about, you know, these are myths that are very much widespread, that are pretty much taken at face value, but they are unscientific. They are not true. And any expert who knows the scientific literature knows that. So if there are experts who are saying something to the contrary, they're either activist scientists or they are promoting a false narrative because they think it's going to help particular communities. So in particular, I would say if you look at something like, if you look for keywords like gender is a spectrum, gender is fluid, gender is a social construct, I see a lot of that in sex ed curriculum, or I guess in in California, it's in our anti-bullying curriculum, is that right, Abigail? So Hmm. just just those kinds of ideas. um, What else is there? That people can be more than one gender, that people's genders change that genders due to traditional s- norms things like that mm.
0: and and it's you know sometimes this is taught not even in a sex ed you know very often isn't in a sex ed class so parents have been sending me i've been talking to different parents this week about sort of the woke takeovers of their children's school and many of these parents are liberal parents these are not right-wingers they send their kids to this school and in one of the sort of toniest prep schools out here um they, they now have, you know, one, set, a mother of a seventh grader sent me the introductory letter that her English, her daughter's English teacher had sent to the class in which this woman introduced herself as non-binary and, and told them the class would be the safe space. And that they should read books with an idea of, you know, with the idea of looking to, you know, for instance, whether Holden Caulfield was, you know, noting the places that he was acting from privilege and whatnot. And you think, what on earth is going on? I mean, this is English class, right? So in English class, this woman's discussing her gender. She's discussing her uh, sexuality. She introduced herself as queer. The the lines of professionalism. I mean, we used to all agree that you don't talk about your sexuality with your seventh graders because it's really no one's business and they're children, right? But somehow we this this one. You know, if anybody who falls into sort of the idea of wokeness or lgbtq that's okay to talk about with seventh graders you know of course it's not you you don't you know talk about an adult shouldn't be up there discussing their sexuality with with their seventh grade class but even you know in in regular standard english classes this is going on across across the country
1: Hmm. i think maybe
2: where it started, it was potentially a good place in that they want to end the stigma around people who are different, especially for, I'd say, gay people who have in the past experienced a lot of discrimination in the workplace, potentially. So to maybe say to kids, you know, it's okay if you are this way. But, you know, we can talk about non-binary, too, because I think that's (laughs) that's, that's something that needs to be talked about more honestly. And I know, Abigail, you discuss this in your book as well, that it's just... Um, I th- I think this movement is harming, especially young women. But I, and on the whole, I don't think it's appropriate for teachers, note especially if it's an English class, to to show up to teach a bunch of twelve year olds and you're talking about your gender identity that has that has no relevance to teaching about The Catcher in the Rye.
1: What is non-binary then, according to you, what you've seen?
2: Oh, when someone identifies as uh, a different gender other than male or female. So either both or neither or a mix of the two to some extent.
1: So it's still built out of male and female as the basic uh, ingredients, right?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's still based on a binary model, essentially, because you're still referring to one of or two, two things, which you know shows, I think, the lack of logic that goes behind the movement.
0: I do think a certain amount of this, you know, stepping over boundaries comes from our impatience. It's like what what, what Deborah was just saying, which I thought was an amazing point was that, you know, this came out of something good. We recognize that, you know, gay teens or sexual minorities w- might feel un- might have felt uncomfortable or, you know, af- you know, afraid to be themselves and whatnot in a in a in a school. And but but the idea that a teacher then has to go in and in seventh grade help them come out is is actually quite crazy it really is because you know you know when we in in prior eras allowing and I'm not talking about any harassment abuse or anything like that because that should always be the business of a school and the school must stop it but letting someone decide their sexuality we never thought that was something that the English teacher needed to help with right you let a kid Figure it out. It's okay if you don't do anything. But today there are these people tasked with a mission, it seems. Um, and I, I keep hearing from parents that they think it's their job to help the child come out as if as if the project of educating our young is so is so boring or so unworthy or so easy that now they've moved on to this other thing.
2: Hmm. And it's overstepping the boundaries, too, I think, in terms of what the role of the parent is, because there's also that larger trend I'm seeing pretty much everywhere now where if a child decides to transition at school, it specifically says and say the policy to teachers, you do not tell the parents. And if the parents call, you refer to the child based on their legal name and their birth sex. You You don't mention anything about transitioning. And I just think that's completely inappropriate because... Parents deserve to know that stuff. And I understand the fear, you know, before, say, if a child is gay, maybe the, the parents don't, don't accept the child and, and maybe they feel like they should have some responsibility in protecting these kids. But it has, again, gone so far in the other direction now where in this case, especially, you know, socially transitioning in these kids in, in many cases is not actually good for them.
1: That's kind of scary if you pair that with what you said earlier about if you can teach children something that's completely subjective, that's not based in objective truth, that they need basically a priest in order to understand the world. Uh, You give them these ideas that aren't really rooted in reality that they can figure out themselves. They have to go by a doctrine. So you take that and then you take this institution that is grabbing more and more power from any other source. It's kind of swallowing an entire generation into this uh, into this institution or into a life where they need to be mitigated or something needs to be between them and reality, uh, and it has to be this collective institution that sounds like a conspiracy theory, but it seems like it's it's kind of those two things together is uh, Kind of a recipe for something rather Orwellian.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I I feel for the parents because in many cases they feel completely helpless, and in, in some cases even the law is on the side of the educators in terms of removing parents from any sort of decisions about this stuff when it comes to their kids.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I I I, I have trouble not seeing this in conjunction with a number of things, not only sort of all norms falling apart and, and, and boundary violations. We sort of feel like our sexuality is everybody's business and, you know, even a seventh graders and whatnot, but, but also, you know, we're having so few kids in the West. We're having, you know, this, the younger generation, the same woke generation is having far fewer kids. And, you know, Deborah was just talking about the, you know, the, the, the undercutting of parents And there's been a real demonization of parents in the school system by young people who are generally not having kids. And on some level, I wonder if they just don't understand that when parents, and I'm talking about lots, most parents, okay, I'm not talking about the abusers, but you're talking about people who give millions of hours to being with these children, to raising them, to making sure they're still alive year after year. And these are not you know the, these are people who know their kids and the idea that some professional who shows up for an hour and decides oh wait a second everything that person who raised that that kid everything they think is is wrong i know the truth the profound hubris of that and the idea that they they should be accepted whereas the the poor you know schnook who actually raised the child should be completely undercut and ignored is, is a very disturbing trend.
1: Hmm. How, do you, how do you, how have you both seen the proper way to confront this? Just let's imagine ourselves as parents with children in schools. What, what do you think is the proper way to uh, push back against uh, this indoctrination uh,
2: I tell my colleagues not to be afraid of being called a bigot, number one, because the administration doesn't even know what they're talking about. So I'll have colleagues reach out to me and they'll say, I don't know what to do. I'm at a loss because this is in my child's curriculum. I have nothing to show to, because if they're saying something like "Gender's a spectrum and they're, they're showing me materials that are within the last few years that are supposedly proving this, how do I fight that? So in the end of gender, I do have, you know, all the citations to studies to, to explain why no gender is binary. Um, but outside of that, I would say don't be afraid to, to stand up and say this is not okay if you have to remove your kids from the class. I think a lot of parents go along with it because they're afraid of being judged by other parents. and so they don't want to seem like they're out of touch or that they are somehow discriminatory, which is completely ridiculous. But at the end of the day, it's your children and that's your right and that's your decision to make. Mm -hmm. That's,
0: that's totally right. And also, you know, I I talked to a lot of parents, obviously, for for my book, you know, I talked to, gosh, well over five dozen at this point. But um, for the book, I interviewed a little less than five dozen. And I, you know, it's, they're worried about losing custody. I mean, when a when a young woman goes through adolescence, I mean, I can tell you, I was a real handful for my mother. I mean, I was, I gotta tell you, and these girls, sometimes they just want to stick it to mom. And if the parents happen to be in a divorce and are on opposite sides of this, you know, I talked to a woman a couple of weeks ago and she was she was afraid of losing. She's really on the verge of losing custody because her daughter announced at 12 that she was trans and the gender nonconforming mom. This is a very masculine mom. I've talked to her at length and I, I you know, I know her occupation and whatnot. This is not a, you know not someone who insists on rigid gender roles she said to her honey you're 12 years old you've never you, oh, you know this isn't making sense that you're suddenly trans I've known you since you were a kid and she didn't go along with it but the dad who did not have custody and the stepmom thought it was great and now she's on the verge of losing custody literally the girl because the girl told confided in her stepmom that she doesn't feel safe with mom and they brought in a social worker I mean these are the kind of let me these are the kind of games that 14 year old girls play with, you know, to get rid of, I mean, they just do. I mean, they really want to stick it to mom. The problem is now we have an engine that will come in and take your child away if you're not going along with the party line. And it's, these parents feel hopeless. They really mm. do. They they feel they're afraid to lose their jobs. They're afraid to lose custody. I mean, they are so isolated. Hmm.
2: You know, we have similar cases like that in Canada as well. And it's, it's heartbreaking. I really feel for these parents because, I mean, in this case, it really is not in the best interests of these children. And, and we're going to see that eventually. And, it, and I can only imagine how it feels to be helpless in that position because really you are you're fighting an uphill battle. And, and there's not a lot that you can do except to, to do as best as you can.
1: Hmm. Th- It's very scary. Not only can you lose your job, but you can lose your children. There's something about this that has uh, captured, in a sense, our institutions or our apparatuses of justice in a way, and it's creeping. So when we have mermaids coming out and saying, "Okay, nobody's born in the wrong body, uh, they might be trying to save face. But the repercussions of what they've been fighting for are going to be playing out over the course of uh years and over the course of lives uh and you said something slightly uh ominous when you said something's coming like what's coming what do you guys think is is going to come and it seems like a lot of us have to sacrifice there'll be a lot of people that have to sacrifice the detransitioners the people who speak up at their offices the people who get fired and then the court cases with uh pr- parenting and stuff uh how many of those to have to stack up before uh, this will be purged from our cultures?
0: i mean, i don't I don't see a full purging for a while, even if they sue individual doctors, so the protocols may change. Medical protocol, but as you said, this is still being pushed in schools very aggressively. There's a lot of gender confusion out there among young ch- children. And you know, I don't see our reliance on experts going away. I mean, the idea, look, are there bad and abusive parents who need to be and the children where the children need to be taken you know protected from them of course of course but right now if a mom says she does not want her daughter to start a course of testosterone at 14 she's afraid to lose custody that's an insane situation and in the case of the mom I talked to her daughter said uh, her daughter told this confided in the stepmom she's in a rebellious period she decided with this, the stepmom was very in favor of transitioning and was very affirming. She had been, you know, agreeing with the da- daughter, going along with the name and pronouns. And all she did was she said, Well, maybe I think about suicide. And I've heard this from another of her parents I think about suicide when I'm with my mom because she's not safe for trans people. And that is enough to just trigger an army. Well, you know, as we know from statistics, there's a big difference between I think about suicide by a kid and any indication that they've actually made any steps towards attempting it or that they have, you know, um, but it is the kind of, you know, it's the kind of threat that can get that for a young teen can buy you complete liberation from all rules set for you by your parents.
2: I worry, too, about detransitioners and what's going to happen with them, because right now they're still not being taken seriously. And I'm really hoping that's going to change. I think at some point there are going to be so many of them that people are not going to be able to ignore them or to say that you were never really gender dysphoric, as they're told now, or told that uh, this is a myth or that they don't exist or that it's so statistically rare that it doesn't matter. So that's my concern because in if, for the book you know they, I was I wrote about them and and I, I just find their stories like I feel as a woman it it affects you in a way that's very unique to the experience of being a woman and growing up as a woman just as I think for a man Benjamin you could probably relate and understand a young man's trajectory in life and and his experience growing up in a way that I couldn't. And so it's really sat with me to to hear their stories and to to see how they're being treated now when they do come out and say this is what happened to me and i don't understand why a movement that is normally championing people's quote-unquote lived experience and talking about how it's really important to listen to a diverse set of voices why these young women in particular and and young men too are are basically being shut down and told that they do not matter yeah
0: that's that's totally right i mean you know I, I the, the numbers of these transitioners are just growing uh, uh, young especially among young women. And look, you know, you know I, I was not someone who got involved in drugs when I, as in my teenage years, but, but mostly because it wasn't available. I mean, I think if I had grown up around constant drugs, I would have probably been doing drugs and and um, the same goes for this gender bending stuff. I mean, uh, you know this you know trying out new genders. There these young women who are in a normal period of adolescence, which is very turbulent, are constantly be to- being told they have alternatives. Here, try this. Who, who wouldn't? And so, so many women say, I would have chosen one of those other things.
2: Yeah, and especially for a lot of these women, their reason for choosing one of these other genders is because they feel different. And I I don't know why people are not saying it's okay to feel different as a woman. We all felt different or uncomfortable with our bodies at some point. That's a very normal part of womanhood, I think, especially when you're going through puberty, discomfort. You know, a lot of young women hate their breasts and are getting double mastectomies. And I'm thinking, well, for myself, I'm small breasted. But like my girlfriends who have larger breasts will say that they really didn't like them when they first Started developing, and it's something you have to adjust to. And you know, you don't like the male attention that you're getting. And these are things that we should be saying to these young women, and especially at a time when there's such an emphasis on gender equality and women's rights. I just am completely flabbergasted that for young women who feel different or feel they don't fit in, they're being told, Go ahead and be a man. Like, isn't that? <laughs> why are not people saying there's something wrong here? And if for a lot of these young women, when you listen to their stories, or I think even when you listen to the stories of um, some of the young women who have transitioned very quickly to male, their reason for wanting to be male, it just it sounds more like they're trying to distance themselves from anything that's potentially female or feminine. It's not so much that they identify as male or they feel masculine. It's that they hate the thought of being a woman. And that is really upsetting to me. And, and that's why I think it's so important that we, we talk about this because I want young women to know that there are, are alternatives and that it's very normal to feel the way that you do and you don't have to change anything about yourself.
1: Do you think that we could use um, some sort of? I guess it's more of a conversation, but some sort of story about what it is to be a woman. It seems like we've we've tried to intellectually break down these categories of gender because stereotypes are negative in, in this way or that way. Is there a possibility of us going back and trying to recreate gender in a positive light? Or do we really have to let it go and get into a post-expectation, post-stereotype world? And is that proper for a young mind to conceive of a world without categories that are based on sex? Like, what do we give young people in order that would be stronger uh, for them and, and yet m- m- flexible enough for them to be individuals.
2: I, I think so. I don't think the solution is to pretend like gender stereotypes don't exist or that there are no differences at the core between men and women. You know, I do talk and write a lot and in the book I write about this, how there are biologically based differences on average between m- men and women in terms of what we see in the brain, in terms of what we see in behavior And that's not to say that's justification for treating anyone uh, differently and not to give everybody a fair chance or to not uh, to justify stereotypes. But at the same time, if you do fit into a stereotype, I don't think that should necessarily be a bad thing either. You know, the majority of women are feminine. I think it should be totally fine to be a feminine woman. But instead, women are being told if you're feminine, there's something wrong with you and you should be masculine because it's more socially acceptable to be like a man. So in that way, I think it's just a healthy acceptance of, of what the truth is, but also saying that shouldn't limit us in terms of the choices we make or the choices we allow children to make.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, I, I think that we spend all together all too much time um, thinking about ourselves today, um, but especially young kids. Wow. I mean, say, you know, they should be busy. They should be out doing stuff. They should not be thinking about what they think, how they feel every second of every day. It's, it's so extreme. I mean, I'll give you an example. You know, um, when my when my kids started school, they decided, at, you know, my kids' school that that they needed to bring in a psychologist to talk to the kids about their anxiety for, uh, you know, about COVID. Well, you can imagine what that produces—anxiety about COVID. We we spend so much time talking about our feelings and taking our temperature that these kids are never allowed to ignore any normal human discomfort and let's be honest are we feeling uncomfortable even even after we pass through adolescence there's tons of discomfort in our bodies especially for women so you know you know anything that you know women used to young women wrote about this in their diaries or used to talk about it with their girlfriends now they take it online and they talk about it in public and it's a much much worse situation, and all kinds of adults are weighing in with these children. They're either celebrating them or encouraging all kinds of bad things, including sending pictures and whatnot. Um, this is this is not where adolescence is supposed to occur. It's not supposed to inc- occur among a lot of you know strangers and, and adults who, who weigh in on your sexuality. Um, it, it really should occur imp- occur in private and and you know by reading mm-hmm. books and and whatnot and and. Anything, you know, anything we can do to have these kids stop focusing on themselves for for as much po- time as possible would seem to do them a lot of good. Hmm.
2: I think the role of social media and pornography has been very influential with this whole acceptance of the gender ideology and wanting to not identify as a woman as well. And that's another thing I think needs to be talked about, because I'm amazed. Like, I feel, Abigail, you and myself, we're like two very few people who are are calling this out I I don't see in terms of the gender stuff I just of course if you're really young you've never had sex and you see you think that pornography is an accurate depiction of what sex is going to be like with a man if you're of course you're going to say no that's not for me I don't want to be part of that I don't want to be potentially degraded like that so I you know I I used to write for Playboy I have no issue with pornography or for adults but for definitely for children I'm concerned about the effects and how that affects their development I'm concerned about how it affects young men's expectations of sex and I think young women already are being flooded by so many messages about what they're supposed to look like and with social media especially that ramps it up so much in terms of not just celebrities but in terms of their peers and there's so much pressure in that way and and it's important for young women to know that one pornography is not going to be indicative of what real life sex is i mean hopefully not i mean in some cases i'm hearing stories of of and you know we're seeing in the in terms of what young women are reporting that sometimes it is like that which it shouldn't be and that's another issue i think but just to know that 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 is not that should not be influencing whether or not you identify as female you know that's something so separate
0: Hmm. yeah the porn we you see online is really scary it involves things like choking um Mm -hmm. it's it's scary to you know adult women let alone children you know 11 year olds 12 year olds these girls are seeing it it's terrifying and, um, and you know, you know we made fun of the kind of stuff that, you know, I, I was born in 1978 and I grew up, you know, my teenage years with the 90s. And, you know, sort of make fun of all the rom-coms that, that were so popular then. But you know what, they made, they made you know, sex and all those things look positive. And today, what they have in place of that is a lot of confusion and terrifying porn. And, and you know, as with Deborah So, I, I don't have any issue with things like Playboy? I mean, it just doesn't bother me. Um, you know, I, I'm not against all pornography and whatnot, but but the scary stuff they have online, you know, it's really disturbing kids, and and frankly, it's even disturbing, you know, young adults.
1: So, Deborah. E- you say several times that you're sex positive in your book and in your writing that doesn't mean that anything goes that you're could you define sex positivity and how there is self control embedded in that or some guidance around what it is to be healthy with regards to one's sexuality
2: So when I say I'm sex positive, what I mean by that is that I think human sexuality should be celebrated. I don't think it should be stigmatized. I don't think there should be any shame around having sex or talking about sex. But I do think it's okay to have boundaries. I don't think having sexual boundaries is necessarily sex negative. Um, I, I have seen some aspects of discourse where people think if you say like my my research expertise was paraphilias which are un, unusual sexual preferences and i've seen some aspects of discourse where people will say if you are not into a particular kink that's kink shaming that's sex negative and i don't think that's true i think as much as we should be accepting of people who may have different sexual preferences so long as they're consensual I think if you're vanilla like me, I think that should be totally acceptable too. And I think it's totally fine if someone says, you know, that's that's great for other people. That's not for me.
0: Hmm. And I'll tell you something else. Deborah said that I, I totally agree with is that you know we we have we've we've come to this place where everyone has a hair trigger to call you know, or the woke crowd has a hair trigger to call everyone a bigot. And people are good people are terrified of being called that. And we just need to get over that. If it's not true, it shouldn't it. It just shouldn't worry you. Now, that's easy for me to say. A lot of people are really afraid of losing their jobs over it, and I respect that. But at the end of the day, we have to start standing up to this. If you're not a bigot, like, you know, I have no, I have a lot of transgender adults I'm friends with. I'm I'm very comfortable with transgender adults. I have no issue with them at all. I don't even, you know, I'm happy for them to transition or whatever, you know, makes them comfortable. Um, I, I, the, The idea that, you know, I should sh- shut up because somebody somewhere called me a transphobe, and usually it's a twenty-year-old who hasn't read my book. It's, it's just ridiculous. That's not the sort of thing that I would, you know, <laughs> I would ever let stop me. And be- because it can't, at some point we-, we have to be able to talk about these things.
2: Hmm. I thought it was interesting because you interviewed Michael Bailey in your book. So Mike Bailey is a, a former colleague and a friend of mine, and he was saying how the this whole PC aspect of language is, in some ways, I think very smart because it makes people constantly afraid, and so they're. I think he was saying something like people are constantly apologizing, and you can't have clear conversations as a result. And I think that that's very clever on some level because I think in some cases these people don't even know what they stand for or what they're saying. Like you're saying they're attacking you, they've never read your book. They're just saying the things that they think they're supposed to say that their friends are saying. And and by them policing language, it helps them not have to ever justify or actually educate themselves about any of these issues.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and I think it's the ultimate gaslight, right? If you can make a population say you no, know, up is down, you know, two plus two equals five. And man is woman. Wow, you've got everyone under control, and so I, I do think I do think that when they decide that you re- repeat after me, this man is a woman, and they try to make everyone say that, they've they've won a tremendous amount of good ground in terms of controlling everyone.
1: Earlier this year, I received an email asking me to interview specifically women to talk about or to get advice for a professional woman to be have the confidence to speak out. And you both seem kind of rather independent. Uh, you're both writers, so you get to... You I don't know how beholden you are to institutions to make your way, but what advice do you have for standing your ground on these things uh, and thinking about professionals out there who might be risking their job? What should they keep in mind and what values should they hold to? And speaking Well, out?
0: I think, I mean, I think that, you know, honestly, people who have stood up to this nonsense have done incredibly well. Trader Joe's did incredibly well by saying, I'm sorry, we're not getting rid of our Trader Jose brands. You know, our 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 customers really like it. It's not offensive. You're being ridiculous effectively. And they did well. And you know, look, the mainstream media sort of has a, you know, cloak of silence around, you know, certainly my book. I don't want to speak for Deborah, but you know,
2: you know oh, definitely they, they, mine too <laughs>
0: right i mean i would I would think you know yeah, i they refused to review our books they refused to mention it it was it was policy at their at a number of the newspapers i was told because i you know a lot of people wanted to review you know asked to review my book ask for copy whatever including top journalists and they were told no and then and you know i feel very fortunate that we live in a time that we have this alternate, uh, you know, alternative media and we can go on places like Joe Rogan and you know what? They have bigger audiences. And they have bigger audiences because they're authentic and they're true and people are tired of the party line, which is coming out of our mainstream media, which is a whole lot of nonsense. Um, so, so, you know, I, I think that, you know, qu- companies should stand up to this and I think the leadership in companies should stand up to this. I never tell anyone to put their job on the line you know, I'm a journalist. I always say if you want, send me the documents, keep your job. But 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 the heads of corporations should absolutely stand up to their their really spoiled twenty year olds who seem to be running the show.
2: Yeah, I think it's cowardice. Because the thing is I don't believe most people are on actually on board with any of this stuff. I don't think most people are on board with cancel culture. I don't think most people are buying this gender nonsense. Um, so I think if more people just said what they thought, we wouldn't have this problem. So I totally get it. I mean, I I built my life in a way that I could say what I think. You know, I left academia for that reason. I'm very, I feel very fortunate now to be a, be able to work as a journalist and have. It, I mean, it's it's sad when I think about it that I have more ability to speak to the science now as a journalist than I did as an academic scientist. But I think if you if that's something important to you, you will find a way to make it work for yourself, no matter what. Uh, the consequences are no matter how many obstacles you face and at the end of the day i know that i sleep better as a result of it i never have to worry about losing friends or that people are going to judge me when they find out what i really think i have lost friends in the past but that happens in the beginning and then after that you make new friends so it really doesn't matter you know and and it's just that overall feeling like i i when i meet people who don't have that same freedom and the how it affects them not just say in the workplace it it bleeds out into your personal life it bleeds out into other areas and, and how you feel overall and I think it, it sit, doesn't sit well with a person when they don't feel like they can be honest about who they are so I would say if someone is considering it just to know that you know you can make it work people will come out and support you um, that would be my advice
1: so faith and bravery in a way yeah <laughs> why gender why why did gender become that which young people are being obsessed about where, where do you guys see the history of this conversation how did it come about what's the ideology of this obsession
2: i i think from a sexological perspective so sexology is the scientific study of sex and gender this was one topic that experts did not want to push back on because of the history that we've had so you know in the book i talk about michael bailey i mentioned earlier in this conversation and how he was basically the poster child i think as to why experts really after they saw what happened to him so for your audience he wrote a book that um challenged some of the very uh cherished narratives of trans ideology and so the activists really went after him really ruthlessly and since then very few people are willing to say anything that makes activists upset trans activists upset because they don't want the same thing to happen to them so in that way I think that's why it's gone unchecked for so long and I I think for most in the field I can't speak for everyone but I would definitely say from my time having been a sex researcher I don't think everyone anyone predicted it was going to be like this um, it 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 has always been an under it's always been understood that you just you don't want to go there you don't want to go there with your research and if you do you know you're going to pay a price for it, but I don't think we saw it becoming as bad as it's become.
1: Do you think that it could have been slowed down if uh, the scientists and the academics had uh, formed a bulwark? And do you think that there was a crossover like they could have uh, caused some sort of. Uh, Wall to happen before it reached the young generation, uh, or at least the medical field and how the medical field treats the young generation.
2: I do, and I mean I have colleagues like Ray Blanchard, and one of my and I wrote about him. I wrote about my colleague and friend Kevin Sue. You know they they've been very fearless in pushing back and still pursuing research that is important and meaningful and honest and the activists go after them and i think if they're i feel bad saying this because i don't want it to sound like i'm criticizing colleagues who didn't do this but i do think it would have made a difference of course of course it would because there would be more of a balance in terms of the the conversation that we're seeing
0: i i think i think when researchers speak up it's tremendously important um obviously there are very few i mean deborah is you know you know, in a really small company of, of experts who are willing to speak out about this and researchers, scientific researchers who have integrity, real integrity on this issue. Um, but but I would say this, this is really fueled by social media, as far as the kids are concerned. This is not fueled by sexuality developing. It's fueled by identity obsession that we have. So now we are introducing all kinds of nonsense identities, like non-binary, which are a, basically a social media creation. Um, you know, they, they, they. You, everyone gets to choose one of forty-two genders, and everyone's having fun doing it because they live their lives online, and their newest identity is the most important aspect of them, as far as they're concerned. That is the sig- signal feature of a person: is their identity. And their diagnosis what you know sometimes it's a diagnosis sometimes it's a sexual identity but that's how they relate to each other young kids and and because of social media that that's what they're on and that's what it facilitates so um the the the, the combination of young people on social media has been honestly pretty disastrous um in terms of their confusion and it's been horrible for young women hmm.
1: What you said earlier about uh, when you described, uh, I think, Deborah, you might have been describing kind of loosely the ROGD uh, phenomena or sub-phenomena of that, meaning that a lot of young women who gravitate towards the trans identity do so not because they love the male uh, principally, but because they want to escape the female. And it seems to be uh, kind of an inverted shadow of the autogynophilia type of male who really wants to become a woman because he adores the woman. It, 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 do you see any research about that? It doesn't seem like to be a paraphilia when a woman wants to escape her sex, but is there kind of uh, some sort of psychological Category that we can, uh, that's being researched or that we can understand this phenomena?
2: Um, For the, for women, so for people born female who identify as male, you will have um, similar to with male to female, there's the early onset. So these are people who are born, they're girls who are very masculine from a young age, they're more male typical. So there's that trajectory. Um, There's another subtype which is called autohomoerotic. Uh, gender dysphoria, which is of young women, born female, who uh, have eroticized the idea of being a, a gay man having sex. So this is something that I found very confusing when I first heard about this because, and so Ray Blanchard has done some research on this, Um, because as a straight woman, you know, I grew up in the gay community, all my friends were gay men. I couldn't, could never picture wanting to have sex with any of my friends as much as I love them. I mean, to me, the, the relationship a straight woman has with a gay man is very special, but it's definitely not sexual. So my understanding is these young women are sexually attracted to gay men or their gay male friends. And so they transition to have sex with their gay male friends. So that's, that's. One aspect of it, my understanding is it's also because of the influence of pornography. These young women don't want to be dominated by a male partner. They don't want to be penetrated by a male partner. So instead, if they take on the male role, they see themselves as more equal to a male partner. Hmm. So it also comes down to sexual orientation. So the early onset, th- these girls are usually attracted to women. So they, I'm not saying this very well, but they're born female, transition to male, attracted to women that's the early onset subtype and then so this second subtype that I'm talking about is uh, born female they choose to transition to male but they're attracted to men so it's it there's it's analogous in a way to the male to female typology in that that is also broken up based on sexual orientation so that if you uh, you know the early onset again they're born male identifies female attracted to men and then with autogynophilia born male identifies female attracted to women.
0: Right. And then we have the rapid onset, which is, you know, what I wrote my book about, which is generally not, neither of those. These are, you know, lonely, precocious girls who um, have no idea what their sexuality is. They spend all their time with mom. They don't spend very much time with other teenagers, but they go online and that's when they decide maybe they're, you know, something other than female. It's it's not coming from an organic place of, you know, sexuality exploration. Um, they are very, very young. Even at 14, they're more like sort of 12-year-olds or 11-year-olds of prior generations because they haven't been on their own very much and certainly not with other kids in person. So, um, yeah, what we're seeing is really, you know, among that population is really like a hysteria, a fad. Hmm.
2: I do I do think for some of the ROGD girls that they may fall into the autohomerotic category in that again it's it's wanting to escape being female and being sexualized as a female so instead they become male
0: yeah that's that's to- that's totally possible um you know and i and i you know I, I don't disagree with that i just think uh you know when we talk about you know a lot a lot of them um it really is coming from something other than you know sexuality
2: oh yeah no for sure
1: what are some of the hopeful things that you've seen that might be combative on that level on the level of uh, that, that hive mind of of youth? Are there ideas that are shaping are you either of you aware of tides changing within that discourse? Uh, and are there different narratives that you might uh, that you think might be helpful for people to avoid uh, kind of being swept up in in that?
0: Well I th- I think the biggest thing change that I've seen is from the parents. You know when you say the okay. truth, it really is like lancing a blister. Everyone is just feels so much relief. And um you know, you know well, a lot of you know parents who contacted me since reading my book are so relieved. Some of these people had no idea it was a, it was all over the country. It was just something they were going through with their adolescent, And they are so relieved that someone's willing to say so that they can point to, you know, a source, a book or whatever, and, and say, I'm not crazy. And so I think it will, I, you know, it depends on the age of these kids because it's, you know, it's, it's different at different ages, but when it, they don't, when they feel relief that they don't have to honor their eleven or twelve-year-old daughters. Every proclamation about her identity, um, they they feel so much relief. So I think that that has been a really you know positive thing that I've seen.
2: Yeah, and I would I would agree with that. And also say for the parents who tell me the relief at knowing that they are not transphobic because they've been told if you don't go along with this, you are a bad parent, you're a bad person. You know they're being told their child's going to commit suicide, and that they are they hate trans people, and just to for them to know that no, it's okay to have these instincts as a parent and to be critical of this, and it doesn't mean you're a bad person or that you're a bad parent for doing so.
1: Did you guys have anything to ask each other?
2: Oh, that'd be. I fun. can me... I
1: can stop being the Chris Wallace in this um, <laughs> <laughs> conversation. <laughs>
2: You know what I wanted to ask you, Abigail? What was the process like for you emotionally? Because you did write a bit about this, but how did you find it from start to finish in terms of, you know, when you're doing a deep dive into this stuff? Because I found it so difficult, like emotionally. It it really surprised me how upset I found it, or how upset I would get when I was doing the research for this. Because I think it does, it does touch on something. I think that we we feel as women that this is in some way universal for us, or maybe, maybe not, maybe that was just me, but I'm curious.
0: Yeah, it's a great question. You know, it, it definitely was an emotional roller coaster. I think the hardest part for me, you know, when I'm writing, I tend to shut things out. I'm a sort of natural introvert. I, I tend to write, you know, at night when I'm alone and I, and I sort of managed to shut out the world, but once the book came out, I couldn't do that. And everybody wanted to talk to me or a lot of people wanted to talk to me. And Um, you know, the parents, in some sense, were the hardest, because sometimes I couldn't help them. It was, there wasn't anything I could do. And I can offer resources. And I could offer, um, you know, it can refer them to psychologists and support groups. And I do that. But, you know, when you when when the whole school has been, you know, affirming your child for a year when the therapist has, or when she's 19 and left the house and started a course of testosterone, these parents are at a breaking point. I mean, I've had fathers call me who feel like they're on the break of a nervous break, brink of a nervous breakdown. Cause I think their daughter's harming herself and she's going to regret it. And they can't do anything and no one will listen to them. And, and even though she's technically an adult, but actually she's more like a 14 year old, she's very immature and whatnot. And it's heartbreaking. It really is. And there's nothing I can do. Um, and and that that was the hardest for me i don't know what your what your experience was
2: mm, i would say it was hearing the detransitioner stories but then also with the parents like you're saying feeling helpless feeling like there's really not a lot that you can do and especially if so many parents have asked me for advice so the you know the one chapter I I wrote specifically on this which is chapter 5 and I opened the chapter by talking about a parent who approached me and asking me and I just didn't feel like I could say because his child was on puberty blockers and I just didn't feel it's appropriate for me to tell him you know, he obviously knew my my view to some extent, but it just doesn't feel right. And, you know, I'm not the parent of that child and, and I don't even really know him or I've never met the child. So just feeling like in many cases, you know, trying to draw attention to this, but also feeling in some ways like there's only so much as a journalist that I can do and just hoping that that it will make a difference.
0: Well, I love that chapter in your book. And I thought the way you handled it was wonderful because not only Um, Because then you came forward in the book and gave the advice that you would have given um, to parents when it wasn't sort of in the personal context of that one, one person. And um, I I, I really admired the book and and very much uh, how you handled that. It's, it's funny, you know, it's hard too because these parents are so different, you know, some of them are so up in their kids' business. And I I don't mean up in their business in the sense that, of course, we all wanna know what's going on with our kids, whatever. But I have had calls from parents who will say things like, "Um, my daughter, she graduated from college, she doesn't have a job, she lives at home, she goes to school, but she works for me part-time, that's her only job and she doesn't have a car or whatever, you go through this list of a very infantilized teenager, and then the mom says, and now she says she's non-binary, what do I do? And I wanna say, you know, look, she's 19 and you're driving her crazy. Like, she doesn't have any breathing room in her life, and you wanna know why she's saying she's non-binary. Like, occasionally, I will talk to that kind of parent, and I think, oh my God, I would wanna transition. Like, I can't deal with this. Like, please give me freedom. And, you know, look, there's a lot of helicoptering in this generation. There's no question. And I do it, too. I mean, there there are a lot of cultural reasons for it. But, um, you know, sometimes sometimes some of the parents are certainly getting in their own way by really suffocating these these teenagers and giving them no other avenue for, you know, individuation.
2: I have to say your book was really funny too. I loved when you were talking about um, when you first started trying on bras and you were describing how like the engineering was more important than look or you were describing pornography too at one point and you were saying about how it's the woman's look of like frozen ecstasy. It was just hilarious. <laughs> you know, it's obviously a okay. very serious subject matter, but to have like those little breaks where it was really funny was great. Thanks. Thanks. I, w- I wanted to ask you, what
0: how has it been for you since the book came out?
2: It's been, I mean, I I expected that there was going to be pushback, but I try to focus on the positive aspects and just, I'm happy that it got out, number one, because I was afraid it was going to get pulled. And um, yeah, it's just been, we just keep going
0: at this point. (laughs) Do you think you'll return to this subject area or?
2: Um, I feel like it's going to be, well, it's, it's, it's an issue that's, on a personal level, I feel important to me. So probably I think, you know, whatever I end up doing next, uh, I probably will always come back to this in some way or it'll always still be relevant to me or it's something I'll always talk about just because I feel so passionately about it. But yeah, in terms of my next few projects, I'm working on something else. Um, I don't want to say what it is yet, but it'll, it'll be probably quite different from what people are used to from me. But in some ways I think that'll be a good thing. What about you?
0: You know uh, yeah I think I think I'm interested in writing on this generation again, but not not from the same angle and um, it was interesting you know being a being a young woman sort of in you know distress or you know going through a hard time was was something that was sort of personal to me but the the overall topic was not personal to me um, I, you know and it that enabled me to write it. Sometimes people assume that I had some personal stake in this. I have to tell you that, you know, I tend to avoid issues in which I don't, I have a personal stake because it's hard for me to write about them in a calm fashion. Um, I don't think I would be able, you know, God forbid, you know, I was going through this, you know, sudden onset thing with one of my kids. I don't think I could write about it in a calm way. I don't think I could sustain my, you know, sort of important object, you know, objectivity and openness for the for the course of the book. I mean, the parents I talked to, you know, I interviewed a lot of the trans influencers in the book. And um, I, you know, I I talked about a lot of trans influencers, I interviewed some. And, um, you know, parents hate them. They absolutely hate them. They think you came into my home, and you destroyed my child. And I was able to write about them. I, I don't hate influencers i actually really like the ones that i spoke to um i think that they're i I didn't feel the same way i i kind of thought you know what these kids are given a platform you know these sometimes very confused kids and they're only in their early 20s they're very young are given a platform in which they can talk to millions of confused children and and i think that's the problem not that these kids are so terrible
2: that's, I would say, one of the blessings of being a columnist in that I I can be a little bit more opinionated and say what I think and have my own voice because I think, yes, similar to what you're saying, if if I had to be an objective reporter, I think I think objective reporting is rare right now just because of how polarized everything is. But I, I think you really have to, I just like that I don't have to sit necessarily pull back how I feel. I can say how I really feel.
1: Yeah, was there a big uh worry about your book being pulled deborah
2: um i was definitely concerned about it when i signed my book deal i didn't tell anybody i told maybe three people in my life because i was very concerned because i'd seen that happen to other people and i just thought that can't happen in this case so yeah i'm really really glad that didn't happen um
1: as authors, have you uh, either of you heard rumors of uh, some sort of stipulation within these books, book deals to protect authors from the cancelers? Do you think that that was necessary, or if it's in the works? Because one after another, authors are getting suppressed or uh, deplatformed.
2: Whether there should yeah. be a, something like that in the contract? Well, is that th- what you're saying?
1: Should there be? Is there? Do you think that that's uh, necessary? Do you think that... Uh, we can have a functioning uh, media without uh, you know some sort of insulation from the crowds that are kind of controlling the conversations. Would you guys want to see that? Uh, oh,
0: I I mean, we we the publishers need to get a backbone right away because right now our you know publishing houses are being held hostage. I mean, I know you know when my book started out when I first submitted my um, book proposal, I got a right away from a major publishing house, a very liberal man who was the head of the publishing house. And I was really excited. I mean, this was a big, it was a big deal for me. It was a big publishing house. The conversation went great. We talked for an over an hour and it was like an hour or so after I'd submitted the proposal and he had heard about the phenomenon of the sudden, you know, epidemic of teen girls identifying, um, because he had read an article about it and he had four daughters and whatnot, or he had some number of daughters and whatnot. And then, um, I thought, wow, that's it. That's going to be my book you know, that's gonna be my publisher. And two days later, uh, my agent got a call and his staff had threatened to walk out. And that's what's happening. That's been happening uh, across the board with publishing houses. So I was very lucky. I went with a, um, a wonderful publisher who who stood by me um, um But you know that is a huge risk for authors, and frankly, it's a huge risk for publishers because at some point people are going to stop wanna, wanting to read the you know party approved stuff that they're pumping out. Hmm.
2: Do you guys yeah, think to, that
1: journalism is oh, going to change in in a better direction? I'm sorry, Deborah, what were you gonna say?
2: That's okay uh in terms of whether journalism is going to get better, I'm hoping that after the election it might be, but i I don't know I'm skeptical i it's such a polarized time right now it's I don't I don't recall a time when it's been this bad, but at the same time I'm you know I'm still getting there in my career so <laughs> yeah. um, I hope it gets better because I, I just don't think I think it it really affects the credibility of the industry or of our profession when people know like you know as Abigail was saying like people know it's not it's just it's just really biased right it's really biased
0: Mm -hmm. i mean i you know i think it's good and bad you know on the one hand you know so many of our 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 mainstream you know media outlets have lost credibility and they're not being read because everybody knows that they've there's they've essentially been taken over by by all these strictures on what you're not allowed to say um on the other hand they they had real apparatuses for for fact checking for for you know editing for they were very good And now everyone's moving to these other outlets, which at least allow you to say what you think. But there isn't the level of fact checking and there isn't the level of rigor in place at a lot of these, um, you know, a a lot of these publications. So they're unlikely to reach the high level of either either in terms of writing or in terms of rigor um, of of our old, you know, you know, our older publications. So I, you know, we have a choice between authenticity and, you know, a real rigorous apparatus. And unfortunately, um, I, I think that the, the authenticity is winning, which is not a, which is not unfortunate. Sorry. That's, that's a good thing, but, but it does come as a price. You know, I think that the, you know, a, a lot of these newspapers gave away something very, very precious. Hmm.
1: Well, you, both your books really work very well together. They kind of pick up and, and drop each other off in this uh, kind of this uh, ballet of uh, information. And
2: uh, I see you, them like sisters in a way. <laughs> yeah. That's <They> right.
1: <laughs> Separated at, I don't know, birth, but they, they converge <laughs> at some point in life. That's for sure. Do you guys um, uh, have anything uh, that's uh, coming up next that people can be aware of? I'll plug the books. Are there? Uh, I, we're, we're in such a weird time with all of these virtual meetings and stuff, uh, so I don't know if there's conferences or anything going on, but is there anything else that, that you guys have uh, that people can go uh, or look forward to?
2: I, I guess I would just plug my, <laughs> i would plug my social media. So I'm at Dr. Deborah So on Twitter, at Dr. Deborah W. So on Instagram. My website is drdeborahso.com, and you can get the end of gender on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Indigo, Indie Booksellers, everywhere. And as I mentioned, I'll be launching some new things coming soon that I will post about on social media.
0: Yeah, I'm just Abigail Schreier at Abigail Schreier on Twitter, and um, you know I'm always writing, so um, I've got some things coming out, and that's the best place to look for me. And and the book's available, of course, Amazon and wherever books are sold.
1: I do have to say, I listened to well, I read half your book, Deborah, and I listened to the other half. I kind of like picked up and picked on, and uh, you don't have a discernible accent until you get to the word sorry, and you're just gonna. <laughs> popped right out it was really adorable i just had to tell you that
2: hilarious that's hilarious i think you sometimes hear it in my o's a bit but that's that's so canadian too for it to be sorry the word sorry
1: yeah that was (laughs) 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 well thank you both for showing up and uh allowing me to have you both on uh thanks
0: thanks so much it's great to it's great to see you deborah and yeah thank uh, you
2: it's so great to see you too and i'm excited for us to just all be in touch Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: That's the end of the recording. Um, Again, thanks again, both of you guys. Thank
2: Thank you. you. This was such a great idea. And thank you, Abigail, for agreeing to do it. Yeah, thank you. It was was a lot of fun.
1: Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.